You have just made the best decision of your day by choosing to listen to the Holistic Bitches Unfiltered Podcast with me, Leslie Rubinoff, the OG Holistic Bitch. You're guaranteed to laugh, have a what the fuck moment, and truly be inspired to change small things in your life that will have you reaping the rewards of living a truly holistic life, mind, body, and soul. Welcome back to Holistic Bitches Unfiltered with your host, Leslie Rubinoff, the OG Holistic Biatch. And today I am so excited to have like literally my new best friend ever in the whole entire world, Joel Relampagus. Relampagos. Relampagos. You got it right. You got it right. Everyone else gets it wrong. You crushed it. It's because we're besties and that's why and you guys are in for such a treat because this is the fucking best person i know and he's so special yeah shut up just let me let me just throw the flowers at you just take them (laughs) fuck (laughs) but guys this is joel and he's so much fun he's a tv executive producer and show host um and a majority of his work was executive producing nbc's hit Weight loss show, The Biggest Loser. And he's also the executive produced the student debt show Going From Broke alongside Ashton Kutcher. He has been a showrunner for multiple production companies such as LeBron James, Spring Hill Entertainment, and Dwayne Johnson's Steve Bucks Productions. He is also the host of student mental health show Breaking the Stigmas, released through the education technology company. Chegg. He is also the founder of Los Angeles-based mental wellness company, Change Your Algorithm. And of course, we met on the club. What, what? Of course we did. We met at the club. Welcome, friend. Thank you so much for having me. Leslie, I am obsessed with you. Now I'm going to throw flowers on you because no one does wellness the way you do because you're so down to earth you break the stigma of you know wellness has to be meditating on top of a himalayan mountain you know with beads and shaved your head but you're just like i'm real i'm (laughs) i was gonna say authentic you don't like that word but you're raw (laughs) and you're gritty and it just shows that like oh you know you don't have to fit that cookie cutter of what wellness of what you think wellness is and you break it Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you. And today we're going to dive deep with Joel and we're going to talk about addiction and we're going to title it, What Are You Recovering From? And I think this is important. I think he's an amazing mouthpiece for this and we're going to get into it. Joel, tell us in your own words, describe what an addiction is. Absolutely. So an addiction is something that you hate doing, but you can't stop doing it. And that's basically, simply put, what an addiction is. My addiction was with alcohol. I hated the fact that I was drinking two bottles of wine a night while I was, you know, having my big boy adult job of being an executive producer. And it was a duplicitous life because I'd, you know, daytime film uh, major TV shows for 12 hours a day. And then nighttime, I would just be by myself and be addicted to alcohol. Um, And that was really more of a coping skill than anything, but I didn't know how to stop it because I was so familiar with it. That's what an addiction is. Even though it's something that you hate, if you're familiar with it, it starts to become comfortable to you. And that's why it becomes so hard to stop because that's all you, that's all you really know. 
Yeah. And, you know, as someone who was, you know, an executive producer on The Biggest Loser, watching people addicted to food um, and bad habits, you know, and while you were filming, were you going home after being around that type of unwellness and jumping right into your own? Yeah. At that point, during Biggest Loser days, I was in full denial about um, my relationship with alcohol. Back then, I thought it was just social drinking. Um, and because that, you know, it was what you do in entertainment. And truthfully, I was in denial because my visual of when, what an addict looked like was the person passed out in a subway with a paper bag. And I was like, I'm not the person passed out in a subway with a paper bag. I'm a TV executive producer. You know, I drive this car and I go to work. So there's no way I'm addicted. So even though I was working on a show about addiction, I was still in full denial about mine. Did you show up to work like a total grumpy asshole? <laughs> no. <laughs> I literally I literally would flip the switch, which was so exhausting. I would wake up, um, you know, drink a ton of water, Advil, um, press like a soda can on my eyeballs, headed in, and I would just snap out of it, you know, because I knew that I couldn't function um, from a, a negative space if I actually wanted to run like a major TV show. And then all of a sudden, when the cameras were off, I would switch back on to, you know, addict role, you know, and it, it's a duplicitous life for a reason. It really was like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type of thing. So basically, you had two lives that you were leading and you were sharing one with one set of people and then sharing the other set, probably more so with yourself than anybody. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it wasn't until, you know, just two years ago that I was like, I'm going to die if I continue this because I started to drink more and more. Again, I was building that immune system because I was so familiar with it. Now my body was like used to more alcohol. Um, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to live if I continue this. So finally, I checked myself into rehab. I spent 50 days there. I spent 70 grand, um, which was the best investment I ever made. But luckily, in rehab, I was able to learn way more about mental health, how my mind worked, how addiction works, how recovery works. And I fell in love with it. You know? And so now I, I'm working on shows that isn't just about you know, entertainment. It's about how we can actually shed light on all things mental health and wellness. Yeah. And how important is that fucking message? Right? Like, everybody like you're like labeled if you have mental health issues that like you're a crazy person, and you're not worthy, and you have no value, and you can't operate in society. And you're just like a write off. And I mean, let's look at the statistics. Like, I think it's like 265 million people who are just suffering with depression. I don't know what the addiction stats are, but like, I'm sure they're up there and especially coming through this fuckery of a life that we're in right now with everything that's going on. It's not easy. Um, my next question for you would be like, Joel, what were you truly suppressing? Yeah. So what I was truly suppressing was when I was six, um, you know, I moved here to the U S from the Philippines exactly on my sixth birthday. Um, and I had a family of seven, and my mom was going through her own depression um, and obviously just like any, any turmoils going from one country to another, um, going through a separation with my dad. But when you're six, none of that stuff really makes sense to you. All you really want to know is why is my mom not spending time with me? 
And so I created this belief that I wasn't good enough because I would be so close with my dad. And then all of a sudden I would be so emotionally disconnected um, with my mom, even though I wanted to be emotionally connected. Um, but that comparison of the closeness with my dad and the detachment from my mom created the story that I'm not good enough, that I'm unworthy of love, that I'm unlovable, that there must be something wrong with me. And so the developmental stages of childhood being ages zero to seven, that fell right in there, age six, that became ingrained in my mind. And so I grew up feeling like I wasn't good enough. And I remember thinking, I'm always going to need validation from other people in order to feel good, which is why there's no question why I got into the entertainment industry and became an executive producer because my job literally became about ratings, making people watch you know, my work and what I do. Um, and I became addicted to that. And even though I was finding success on paper, even though I became an executive producer at a young age, I felt like none of that was enough. And that was because I didn't feel like I was enough. So it wasn't until I was in rehab that I had to do inner child work and I had to revisit that six-year-old who I basically abandoned. So the one thing that he didn't want, I did to him, was abandon him. Because I felt like, well, he's, he's you know in the past and I don't need to deal with that anymore. I'm just going to change myself completely. But that internal work of meditating, visualizing him, like his hair, how he smelled, how, you know, what his smile looked like, what he was wearing. I literally put him right in front of me, not even like as an imagination thing. Like it was so real because I did hypnotherapy and I told him, I am so sorry I abandoned you. I'm so sorry that you feel like mom doesn't love you, but I am the future version of you. I'm going to be your parent, your best friend, your sibling, whatever you want, I'm going to be your protector. And that word really sticks out to me because now I get to protect him. And all of those things that he wanted to hear, um, those are great sounds for your podcast, by the way. Just the Fuck, thing. I'm thirsty, fuckers. I'm going to drink my fucking green juice. And whether you hear the straw clink the fucking thermos, get over it. Producer, fuck off. <laughs> Literally. So I visited that inner child and I was like, you're worthy of love and all these things. And I kept telling him that until he started to believe it. And once he started to believe it, I started to believe it. And then all of a sudden that addiction towards alcohol went away. And then I realized I didn't have a drinking problem. I had a problem that I was treating with drinking. You know, it wasn't the facts of here's why alcohol is bad for you. Like I knew alcohol is bad for me. And or like, you just need to not drink. Like, no shit, Sherlock. Of course I know that. <laughs> but it was literally this inner child work because that kid was still suffering for 30 years, you know, and he felt abandoned for 30 years. And it took him to start to feel good in order for me now to feel good. Message of the story is that whatever you wanted to heal from back then, you can provide as an adult right now. Yeah. And two things that just stuck out that I want to look at is, you know, the foundation of a child is formed by the age of six. And all of those things that you do or don't get are kind of engraved in your in your in your brain, in your cells. Your your cells store memories. They store experiences. And when we have those, it's very difficult to move forward after the age of six and kind of like figure shit out because that's all we know and that's that's the foundation. So we have to kind of like reconstruct and throw down that house. So 
it, I, I love that you said that because it's it's an important message, especially for people who are listening who have young kids. Like, do the work with them now. You know, even energy work now. Undo if they're just five. Like, there's still shit and trauma in a five year old that you wouldn't even think is a trauma that can be significant moving forward. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because the first time I saw a therapist was eight years ago, and she was like, "So, what are any traumas in your life?" I was like, "No." <laughs> I didn't see any like murders. I wasn't involved in like any major car crashes. And then I started to talk about my childhood. She, she, and she was like, you know, that's a trauma. I was like, what? Like lots of moms, you know, um, they get, you know, emotionally disconnected or whatever. And they're like, no, what's the story you told yourself? And I was like, oh, that I'm not good enough. I'm like, I guess it is a trauma. But I'm glad you brought that up because a trauma doesn't have to be this, you know, dramatic thing that we all think that it is it can be something as simple as a lack of feedback from a parent yeah and at that age like we want that validation it's natural that's not like adults on fucking instagram posting their face being like can you like my comment can can you can you like and follow me it's a little bit different as a child when you're building that foundation (laughs) that they know that they're you know loved and safe and something else let's let's Joel, why don't you just give like in your best description what inner child work is? Because I don't think everybody knows. I mean, I do, but I don't think everybody knows what that is. Yeah. So inner child work, basically, as we talked about, developmental stages of childhood is ages zero to seven. And that's when we're creating our belief system, which falls into our subconscious. Our subconscious mind is 90% um, brain power. And then we function off of the conscious mind, which is 10% of the brain power. The conscious mind knows the truth, which know, which is basically, I know that I'm talking to my friend Leslie right now, and Leslie knows that she's talking to me. That's the conscious mind at work. The subconscious mind is, holy shit, I wonder if Leslie thinks I'm doing a good enough job in this podcast right now. Uh, oh gosh, I must not be doing a good enough job. So that subconsciously is stemming from my childhood, which is, oh, I'm not good enough, right? And so- Inner child work is when you actually revisit yourself in that initial stage, that initial age where you started to develop a trauma or a wound. And inner child work can be done through meditation by visually um, you know, seeing yourself as a kid, actually embracing that pain, or writing in a journal um, as if you are that age, or even just looking at photos of yourself and talking to yourself as a child. And then once you start to do that inner work, it is that child now who is doing the speaking. And when a child is hurt and we just continue to grow up, um, sometimes we won't be listening. And what children do when they don't feel like they're being heard is they're going to throw a tantrum. So you can run as fast as you can, as long as you can, but that child is going to be wanting to be heard. And until you actually go inward and listen to whatever it is he or she is saying, then that's when the work actually begins um, and that's what I did. I heard that my inner child doesn't feel good enough. I heard that he doesn't feel like his mom loves him. And so I had to be all of those things that he wanted. And I had to come from a place that was very genuine and real. Because those things that I was telling myself as an adult, Joel, you're a piece of shit. Joel, you're never going to be successful, truly. You're always going to be alone. I was telling that six-year-old. And so once I start to see it that way, I go, oh my God, this is child abuse. Imagine if you saw me yelling at a six-year-old in the street telling him that like you would call the cops or punch me in the face right I'd punch you in the face for sure. you punch me in the face yeah and then you, you take that six-year-old and be like i'm going to protect you now so now i go i can't talk to him like that 
And once I understood that, then I started to feel, you know, the benefits of him feeling good. It's so fascinating because it does start to become this boomerang effect because whatever I'm giving to him, I'm getting back tenfold. Um, and that's basically inner child work in a nutshell. Yeah. And um, imagine if they taught that in fucking school. Like, why did I take five art <laughs> history classes? And like, I can, I can name the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria uh, but I didn't take one mindfulness class. I didn't take one inner child work class. I didn't take any class about coping skills for, I don't know, depression or anxiety, which leads to, you know, addiction, suicidal ideations, all of these things. But like, it's not in our education system. No, I mean, it, I, just, I just get so riled up about it. Maybe we need a show, Joel. Yeah. It's called Bad Teachers Teaching Good Things. <laughs> <laughs> We'll work on that. It's a little bit weak, okay. but um, <laughs> you failed your pitch. Um, Joel, what would you say, like, on a scale from, like, 1 to 10, you know, how angry were you when you discovered booze? Oh, I was at a 10. I was at a 10. I developed a cyst in my body, like, the size of a quarter. And I remember just hating life and, like, myself and, like, um, you know, who I became. And I started to create this story that my future was going to suck. Cause this was when I was going through a breakup, um, stress at my job and my mom started to develop this really rare disease. And so I felt like I was losing everything in my life and I felt like I had no purpose. And so that's when I had, you know, suicidal ideations. I was angry at myself. Um, and it was just this stored energy, this stored toxic energy in my body you know, and it started to manifest as this freaking cyst. And I knew exactly what it was. I knew exactly what it was. I was like, I, I totally did this to myself. But the difference between now and then was that then I started to blame myself even more that I did that to myself, you know? So I had this guilt and shame on top of that, which really just made it worse. And, and I've heard you kind of talk about that. I mean, let's pivot for a second, but like, the power of our emotions manifesting, you know, as disease, every disease I believe has a emotional connection. And I also believe if there's an emotional connection to all disease, then we can totally heal all disease. Exactly. That's right. And, you know, truthfully, when somebody gets a, a diagnosis, uh, a bad diagnosis, you know, the American Psychological Association stated that we it's it's easy to go into a depression. And we all know that when you go through a depression, you physically don't want to do anything. You're just like laying in bed. Um, but they basically say that that adds on to the stress and depression. And then you now are not doing anything on top of having a, you know, uh, a wound, you know, that you're not healing from because you're piling on more negative energy on top of it. But once you actually shift your mindset and you start moving, you start doing things like yoga or even meditation, you're actually telling yourself that I'm worthy of healing from this. You know, even journaling. Like we were talking about having that emotional dump, that mental cleanse, you know, because you're either going to store this or release it. You know, and I do think that like that thing that I had, whatever it was, like it was stored negative energy manifested. Yeah, 100%. And I think the term that I used was we were like emotionally constipated. 
And then I said, oh, it's such a good term. It's <laughs> basically what it is. Big word, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> I love how your big word is constipated. <laughs> You're a fucking asshole. <sighs> but yeah, and it's like we need an emotional colonic. Like we need yeah. that. Everybody needs that. Another like, put it on the, the curriculum in, in school. Like we need that. Um, another question was, you know, so here you are, you have this really terrible addiction that like, you're like aware of, but like, you're like, let's just see how bad I can dig this hole. Um, what were you feeding yourself? Yeah. When I was, um, drunk as all hell, I would eat crap. You know, I'd get fast food, I'd Postmates fast food, I'd wake up hungover. And so I instantly wanted those greasy foods because, you know, I would tell myself, oh, it's going to absorb the alcohol. Um, and then when I would get, get into a night of drinking, I wouldn't eat anything because I remember thinking, well, if I don't eat anything, I'm just going to get drunk faster. So I'm just not going to eat anything. So it was literally the opposite of, of you know, how I should have been eating. And I don't like to shit on myself. But it wasn't the healthiest foods. Um, ironically, I was still uh, working out because I remember thinking I got to burn these calories off and I'd work out with like a hangover. But in terms of the food, which is a huge part, you know, of a healthy lifestyle, I was not ticking that box. Well, and it makes sense. Like, why would you be right when you're already doing yeah. one thing bad? Like the last thing you're thinking about is like nutrition and like fueling your body to like perform. And I'm sure when you were working out, you, your sweat probably smelled like absolute fucking shit. Oh my God. My poor trainers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true because that stuff yeah. has to come out, you know? Yeah, exactly. But you're right. I wasn't like there was no part of me that's going to be like, you know what's going to taste great with this tequila? A salad. Green, green <laughs> juice, right? Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It's, it's, the, the whole psychology of how fucking stupid humans can be, mm-hmm. especially to themselves and abusing um, ourselves. And, you know, I've been there. I've had that addiction with food. And I think all addictions are valid, whether it's sex, porn, whatever, shoes, purses, drugs, booze, you know. Right. Addiction is addiction, and you already explained, you know, what it was. So for you, what was the high from from your addiction? Uh, the high from my addiction was the fact that I would numb those negative emotions. But there's no such thing as selective numbing. You know, like I couldn't just go like I'm just gonna numb the bad stuff. So I was also numbing the good stuff, which is the harm in you know having a substance abuse. Um, problem is that you're numbing now everything. So when I would wake up, those good emotions that I would have naturally are now like numb, you know? And yes, while I was numbing the negative, I was also numbing the good. That's why like alcohol, like major consumption of alcohol is so, so bad for you. Because all of a sudden I would just be in physical pain. Now all of my emotions are numb and the emotions that I would feel was guilt, which then led into shame. You know, and I want people to know no matter what addiction you have, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't um, feel ashamed because you're going through it for a reason. We're all naturally trying to find a way to heal. Yes, that is not the healthiest way to cope. But when you start to release the shame and ask for help, that's when change actually happens. You know, it doesn't mean validate the addiction and keep doing it. It just means that acknowledge that you're trying to find a better way to cope. 
Yeah, it's true. And when would you say that like you started to loathe it and hate it, but felt like you were just like, there was no control, but at some point, you know, you start to hate what you're doing. Oh my gosh, easy. I was on location and I woke up in the, during the weekend, like at 1 p.m. Um, in my balcony where I was staying in my robe. And I woke up because like the sun was like glaring on me. And then I was just in the middle of a pile of empty wine bottles. And I was like, ugh. And I started to pick up the wine bottles and I put it in, you know, this giant uh, trash bag. And I remember looking out the door, you know, to make sure like the cleaning lady wasn't coming because I was cleaning my freaking place before the cleaning lady came. Like that's how much shame I was in. I didn't want her to know that I had that much alcohol like in my place. That's, that's how much shame there was. And so finally I was like, I can't do this. And I really felt like I was dying. I, gosh, it's like bringing me back, but I really felt like I was dying. And then I, I was like, I had to call my dad and I was still drunk obviously because I consumed a bunch of alcohol. And this is how the universe works. Luckily, my dad was having um, a meal with my sisters, so they were already all together. And I told them straight up that not only do I have a drinking problem, I, I want to go to rehab. Um, crying on the phone, my family was crying because they had no idea. They genuinely had no idea because when I would go to family events, we don't drink. And I would wrap up that event at a family event and then come home and then drink. Yeah. You know, so it was a, a, a giant shock for them. So there was no, okay, so that was like basically your point where you're like, fuck, like I need to get my shit together now or it's going to get real bad. So you didn't get to a point where it was like this near life death experience for you. Um, you kind of grabbed it by the balls, like in the right, probably just before it was going to, you know, not to take away from how bad it was, but some people hit the floor to their, like, they see their lies flash, flash before them. Um, so I guess that's good that that didn't happen to you. Um, yeah. But, you know, moving into that, so this would be what your turning point was and what did that look like? Like, what were the decisions made? What were, what were you feeling? Oh, my gosh. So I felt a relief when I finally told my family that um, because – I love my sisters and, you know, my dad when I spoke to him. And then by the time I came home from that shoot, which was a couple of days later, my dad had listed out all of these rehab centers that he researched for me. And he was like, here are the three that I found that are the best. Um, you choose where you want to go. I chose it. And then um, they drove me to rehab. And as soon as I got there, Leslie, I was like, oh my God, I feel like a contestant on one of my shows because <laughs> I was entering this, you know, space where I couldn't leave. And then there's like 50 other people there that were so different from each other, totally different from me. I, I had my, my bags and I, I had no control here. And I was used to controlling like everything, everything even <laughs> though I was out of control with my drinking. But at least like I had that with work. I was like, I get to control like what the finished product is going to look like. 
Um, and I was like, I should not be here. I shouldn't be here. Actually, I think I'm fine. And so that first day in rehab, I was like, I had visions of me hopping the fence <laughs> and then just going to a bar because I didn't know how to handle stress other than drinking it. And so I like looked at how high the fence was. I was like, I could hop that. Um, and I had like my phone and stuff. I was like, I wonder what the closest bar here is. I was addicted. You know, I'd been drinking yeah, alcohol sure. for 17 years. And that first week was, oh, so painful because I was getting that um, toxic waste out of my system. And I was having nightmares um, because I was going through withdrawals. And, you know, I don't know if people know this. It's actually not safe to do this on your own if you drink that much and then just stop an addiction because your body is actually used to that. I think, Joel, don't they say that, like, alcohol is the only substance that you can't just cold turkey it, like, because it can kill you? Yeah. Your body's actually used to it at this point. And, like, you need a little bit of, you know, something. And so the doctors were giving me, um, you know, medicine to transition from being drunk all the time to wanting to become sober, you know. So uh, it took about a week. And then at that point, what, what I found to be interesting was that, like, you know, they were saying that you're not physically addicted anymore. Like, you're technically not supposed to be physically addicted anymore. But still, I had these thoughts of drinking, which meant that mentally I was addicted to it. That mentally, you know, this is my coping skill. Alcohol is my best friend. Those were the beliefs that I was telling myself. So now the rest of the rehab experience was more of just understanding my mind and how it worked. Yeah. And what was like, was nutrition important there? Or they were like, fuck nutrition. Let's just do everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so interesting. I didn't have a sweet tooth, but my go-to wine was Sauvignon Blanc, which is basically like the Kool-Aid of wines because it's all sugar. Um, I I literally wanted to devour any dessert. And so they had dessert tables there and i was like carrot cake give me that um yeah and i would constantly eat dessert and then eventually they're like you know now you have to understand that we can moderate the amount of uh sugar that you have and so i started to see a trainer and then you know there are obviously like salads there and proteins um and they're very upfront they're like you're gonna crave sugar because your thing was you know white wine and yeah. then so for another week, I like ate every dessert. But then now I was transitioning to like, all right, healthy foods, you know, you know proteins, greens, um, water versus wanting like sodas and whatnot. And so it was such a, a me- like it was the best experience. N- not that I want to go back, but it was exactly what <laughs> I needed. No, you don't want to go back. No. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the first things you said, you know, it's like it cost you 70 grand to go do this. What do people do who can't afford that? Like, what would you have done if you couldn't afford that? Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing about, you know, the system that we have here is that there's um, insurance. However, when you go through insurance, you know, their job is to not fork out so much money. Their job is to go, all right, how is this person doing? Are they good? And then we have facility, you know, so it's like, yeah, you know, they probably need more time here. But if they're showing signs of improvement, then all of a sudden you're not, you don't need to be there, you know? And yeah. so I, I saw all these people, truthfully, that that were going through insurance and then they were leaving sooner than what they should have. And that's the shitty thing about... Um, 
mental health is that with physical health, if you have a broken bone, a doctor just has to show an x-ray of a broken bone. Right. There is no x-ray of depression. There is no x-ray of, you know, anxiety and a sense of unworthiness. There's, there wasn't that x-ray of me as a six-year-old, you know, creating that false belief that I'm not good enough, you know? And so there's no coincidence as to why I paid everything out of pocket because I was like, I want the full rehab experience, you know? And so I chose to be there for 50 days. Wow. And what, how difficult were the first 21 days? I would say the first two weeks were the toughest. The first week was that whole withdrawal process. Second week was when I ate everything with sugar. (laughs) And then the third week was when I started to really start to transition from crappy foods to eating healthy. That's when I started to work out more, um, you know, do yoga. And I, at this point, really um, had a journaling routine down, which was so awesome. My sleep was the best um, come that third week. But yeah, the first two weeks were not were not great, you know. And so it's unfortunate for somebody to go through the first week, you know, they've got it out of their system, and then they go back, you know, because there's still so much more to learn as I as I learned. Yeah. And would you say that, um, at, or not would you say, but at what point at that facility, did you be like, fuck, I think I'm going to be okay. Like, I think I can do this. Like, I think I can really be strong enough to pull myself out of this and, and really change my life. I would say week four of it. Once I realized that I didn't need to turn to desserts to fulfill that sugar craving that I had mm-hmm. and seeing like these beautiful thoughts on paper from my journaling. And I had a routine down, which was wake up in the morning, work out, journal, meditate, you know, go to these therapy classes, um, eat healthy foods, come back, journal, and then sleep. It was so good. You know, they say that the, your routine is really everything. And when it starts to get off, then, you know, um, you start to feel off. And so, okay, so when did you come out? When was your last day? What year were you in rehab? Like, what? when was that? This was... Um, a, a little over a year and a half ago, uh, I got out after 50 days there because I just want, I, I liked, you know, that number 50. <laughs> and then I was like, 50. Because um, it was supposed to be 30 days. And yeah. I like loved rehab so much. I was like, I want to be here for another 10 <laughs> and then another 10. Um, and when I got out, I was like, damn, this whole like working on TV shows isn't doing it for me anymore because I didn't just want to work on any other TV show anymore. I felt like I just took in all of this knowledge that people shouldn't have to pay for and certainly not $70,000 yeah. to, you know, to feel better and save your life. And so I created this program called Change Your Algorithm. And basically the model is that I found a bunch of mental health therapists that wanted to volunteer their time and then they lead classes via Zoom. And whoever wants to join can join for free and they don't pay a penny. And the whole model of Change Your Algorithm is based off of what I learned in rehab. Because I learned that we're all recovering from something, whether it's an addiction, grief, loss, a sense of unworthiness, racism. And then later on, I found out a pandemic, which would happen like we're always recovering from something. 
And I think that breaks the stigma about what addiction is, because once we realize that we're all trying to get better from something and we're all trying to heal from wounds, whether it happened yesterday or 30 years ago, like we're all recovering from something. And those things that I learned applied to everything. It wasn't just about how to stop drinking. It applied to anxiety management, coping skills for depression, mindfulness, all of that stuff. So it was nice to see that it became more than, you know, just a recovery program because it's a life-saving program. Which now you're bringing to so many people to do the same thing and to give it freely and and to do that freely um, and share that so that people have access to that. I think Maya needs to take a poop and she's yelling at me. <laughs> she's so cute. Yeah, hi, Lou. Um, I, want, I want you to talk more about, you know, what you're doing. Hold on one sec. Okay, so back to you, Joel. So let's talk about, you know, breaking the stigma um, and that show that you have too. And then the whole you know, this new mental wellness company and the change your algorithm, basically providing free advice to people who are trying to heal. And is it a program that somebody can be part of without being facilitated by, you know, in a rehab place, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. So change your algorithm, basically each class is led by a mental health professional, um, you know, sometimes I'll lead a class, but for the most part, it's therapists that lead a class. And, you know, from a, a legal standpoint, these mental health professionals are our guest speakers, the same way that you can have an astronaut be a guest speaker for a class. Um, but what I like about it is that it's basically, you know, a support group slash group therapy, like what I was experiencing in rehab. So people can join in Zoom online. Uh, and then they can hear a therapist talk about coping skills for depression, anxiety management, all of that good stuff. And then, you know, again, it's for free. And I have the community basically suggest what topics they want us to cover in these Zoom classes. And then we have now a large Rolodex of therapists that go, oh, yeah, I can cover a topic on forgiveness or toxic relationships. And then all of a sudden, you'll see it on the website the next week. So it's pretty cool. It's only been 11 months. And now we already have 1000s um, in the community. And you know, we're opening uh, change our algorithm in Italy. Uh, it's going to be called Cambia il tuo algoritmo. Look at you. In Italian. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> um, so it's going to be like Italian classes. Um, these therapists in Italy were like, we love what you're doing. Uh, also, opening one in um, the UK as well as Canada. And the reason why, even though it's like virtual, is because there's gonna be some topics that are really just focused within the UK or just focused within Canada, right? I think some countries that are like, can we just not deal with like the American <laughs> issues? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm super pumped about that. And it's a really simple model. It took some time for me to find like a large team of therapists, but I'm so happy that we have it and that people are signing up and joining these classes. And what are you essentially manifesting for this? What's your goal? What's your reach? What do you want? My goal is to normalize mental health and to put mental health on mainstream media. I think that if something is mainstream, then it's not so taboo anymore because when pe the more we talk about mental health, the less people will feel so alone. 
if you think about group fitness, which I love, right? I'd always be like, Soul Cycle, Barry's Boot Camp. You know, I talk about it. You post at these group classes and you're like buying outfits. And then like you talk about it with your friends. And you're like, oh my God, that class was so cool. That trainer was so hot. And then like you're already booking your next class. Like I want that uh, for mental health. Because if people are that open about, you know, taking care of their bodies, we should be that open about taking care of our minds. Absolutely. I want people to talk about, you know, uh, uh, mental wellness and anxiety and depression and all that stuff. Because when we go to the gym, no one's like, ooh, you're going to the gym. Are you okay? <laughs> Is your body okay? But we have that fear that other people are going to judge us when we talk about therapy, you know? And therapy looks a little bit different for everybody, right? And, for you know, sure. it's interesting. People will be like, there's a stigma to going to therapy. I think everybody needs a fucking therapist. But the key is, is you actually have to find someone you connect with, right? Like you're, you're yeah. spilling your soul to somebody. It's like putting on jeans. Like they don't all fit, even if they're the same size. They just don't all fit. So That's right. it's the same thing with a therapist. And, and it could be discouraging for people because – they have one bad experience and like therapy is not for me, but therapy is legit for every single human that walks, walks this planet. Again, in my opinion, um, what do you think, you know, did you believe you could heal? Like, like, did you were like, yeah, I can heal. Or were you like, I'm fucked for life. And this is a sentence. I started to believe that I could heal when I was in rehab and I was noticing myself feeling better you know, energetically, physically, mentally. Um, and I knew that this was something that I needed to share with as many people as possible. Because for me to spend a majority of my life unaware of things like mindfulness and how I'm the observer of my thoughts and I'm not my thoughts was a game changer, you know? And that stuff, like, we can learn for free, which is the beautiful part. You know, we just need an outlet or a safe space to to talk about it in. And... You know, there's so many people who struggle. There's, you know, when you walk down the streets in LA now, do you have a different lens of people? Like, are you like, mm, I wonder what's going on with that person? Or, you know, I wonder how could I help this person? Like, what's your lens now like for other people? Yeah, I became less materialistic uh, ever since this awakening, if you will. I used to be the type of person that would buy like really expensive things because I felt like you could buy happiness and like it's exterior validations that validate you, you know, but I noticed that or, or when the pandemic was happening, like I was like selling my stuff because I was like, there's just too much stuff. Like I turned my garage into a meditation room, you know, um, I like got rid of one uh, this car that I would pay so much money for because I thought it was like so cool. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, and I realized that, like, am I am I driving this for transportation or validation? And I was like, oh, I'm driving this for validation. I'm like, I don't need this. And so now when I look at other people, you know, I really do my best to not judge them because I go, when people saw me years ago, they thought I would, I, I had everything, that I was happy, I had a career, I was raking in the money, but I was fucking depressed and going through suicidal ideations. You know, so now when I look at people, I'm like, I want, like you said, I wonder what they're going through, you know, and it's not, it's not a pity thing. It just makes me wonder because there's so much that goes on in our minds. And I think there's a big convoluted aspect to people who have money. 
I think people believe that money fixes everything, but it really fixes fucking nothing. And I think actually the people with the most money have the most problems and the ones who don't want to do any work because they can just suppress with the dollars. And I think that's an important message because people, people strive for wealth and they forget about their health. It's like the most, it's the craziest thing. Give me a big word for that, Joel. Give me a big word for that. It's it's basically destination addiction. It's a, not that big of a word, but destination wait, addiction wait. is when you have this idea that you that happiness consists of a place consists of a place outside of yourself, and so you become addicted to going to that destination of I will be happy when I make a million dollars. I will be happy when I have the perfect girlfriend. I will be happy when I have the mansion and the car. But what happens when you're saying I will be happy when you're telling yourself that you're not happy right now. And so when you get to that place, you're like, actually, you know what? A million's not enough. I should make two. And you're constantly going, the grass is always greener. The grass is always greener. I learned the grass is greener wherever you water it, Amen. you know, and doing that <laughs> inside work. And so that's what I think about. And so for anyone that doesn't believe that money doesn't buy you happiness, like, look at all these celebrities that we look up to. And then all of a sudden you're like, what? They took their own life? Like they had everything. But again, celebrity is the ultimate instagram post because it's like in the form of a movie or in the form of a song with a team of people you know synthesizing it or editing it and you know we have no idea what goes on behind closed doors that's for sure and i don't know the validation that everybody's so hungry for is so puzzling well it it is and it isn't because it's like you need to do the work You need to start, if you are seeking validation, and I mean, it's human behavior regardless, but if that's happening, you need to step aside and be like, what the fuck's really going on? And what do I really need? What do I, how do I fulfill myself? And, and how do I fix this? Because we need to stop seeking validation from other people. That's an addiction. It's an addiction and it's toxic positivity and it's an addiction. And we're, we're all um, guilty of it. I want to ask you two more questions, Joel, before we wrap up here. And the first one would be, are you happy and what makes you happy? I am happy. And what makes me happy is knowing that I'm not always going to be happy. Um, I used to have this uh, false belief that, you know, happiness is you're going to live happily ever after. And every day is going to be happy, 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 happy. But I'm so happy now knowing that I know how to respond to unhappiness. You know, because look, I'll be honest, I wake up sometimes feeling sad, maybe a little bit depressed, but I know how to respond to it now. And that's through compassion. And it's this relationship that I have with myself that has been the most rewarding. Speaking of addictions, I used to be addicted to always dating somebody and wanting to be in relationships. But now I'm like, wow, I'm learning so much about myself. And that curiosity it makes me happy and it connects again with that inner child because that kid is just so curious about life and what he gets to do. And now he is like partnered with me, you know, kind of like being a dynamic duo, except that kid is Batman, you know, and I'm Robin, but that makes me happy to know that um, there's always going to be shit going on in life. But despite any external chaos, my inner peace can always be in my control. Right. And so date your fucking self, right? Date yourself. It's the longest relationship you'll ever be in is with yourself. And it's fulfilling and it's the best one. Okay, Joel, what are your what's your message for people who are struggling? What would you tell them? My message for people who are struggling is that you're not alone. 
Um, and I think that when you're struggling, the mind does a really good job of convincing yourself that you're not alone, but remember that you're not your thoughts. Uh, you're the observer of your thoughts. The mind, 80% of our thoughts in a day are considered to be negative. So you have the power to consciously shift that perspective. So in, instead of asking yourself, what if I fail, start asking yourself, what if I succeed? Um, I truly felt like I was the only person in the universe that was going through that much pain, anxiety, depression, and addiction. Um, but once I started to ask for help, all of a sudden, a cavalry of people came to my help, you know, to help me. Is that too big of a word for you, cavalry? I love your big words. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that big. Constipation was still the biggest word used today, by the way. Oh, my God. Um, in this podcast. Um, but yeah, you're not alone. Ask for help. Yeah. And what's your biggest ask from the world? My biggest ask is to break this mental health stigma and to extinguish shame that we shouldn't be talking about our emotions because that is probably the healthiest thing that we could do right here and right now. The United Nations stated that the next pandemic is going to be a mental health pandemic. And unlike this current pandemic with COVID, the mental health pandemic is something we can already have the vaccine for, and that's by acknowledging your emotions, speaking up about it, not being afraid to ask for help, and connecting with others through vulnerability. Amazing. And where are people finding the great Joel? <laughs> you can find me at changealgorithm.com. That's the website. Um, in terms of Instagram, you can find me. My handle is at Joel Rolampagos. And also find me in the club where I met my best friend, Leslie. What? And my handle is also at Joel Rolampagos. And people should probably just know how to spell Rolampagos because that's just they probably like should. not a big word. It's not that big a word. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love you. And I'm so happy I love you that so you much. came here and did this with me because it's an important message. And, you know, yes, it's – we you know, what are you recovering from? We talked about it and addictions are very real and addictions are so different for so many people. And just recognizing that just because your addiction may not be recognized doesn't mean that you don't have it. Um, so I love you and I can't wait till Canada gets shit together and I can fly out and come hang out with you and all your fun friends because your life is exciting. Um, and I can't wait to see all the greatness that you do and maybe we'll create greatness together on something that we don't even know we're going to do yet. You know it. I love you tons, Leslie. And like I said from the beginning, thank you for just fucking doing you, you know, for redefining what wellness looks like, for redefining what holistic looks like, because I think we get caught up in these definitions. Same way that I thought a definition of, a, of an addict was somebody passed out in a subway, a definition of a, a healthy person was somebody levitating in the Himalayan mountains. But it's like, we get to redefine everything in life, you know, Can you create levitate? our own path. I'm levitating. Right, I've been levitating now for um, 46 minutes. 49, but it's okay. 49 minutes. <laughs> anyway, guys, find Joel. Find him on the club because his rooms are healing and they're therapeutic and they give you a different perspective and he uses these really big words that most people don't know what they are. Um but I love you and thank you. And I'm so glad that you're in a really good place and that you kick this addiction in the ass because the world needs fucking Joel. Hell yes. I love you tons. I'll see you in the club, my girl. Mwah! Love you. Mwah. Thank you. Peace. 
for tuning in to the Holistic Bitches Unfiltered podcast. I hope you got what you came for and you're eager to return for future episodes. My one ask is that you hit the subscribe button and if you could be so kind to leave a raving review. Sending you so much love, light, healing, and inspiration to be a better you. Peace out, friends.